Adventure Episode 15. I've been trying to get this one to happen. I have my homie Maurice Joseph on the line. How you doing, man? Doing great, man. Finally get to get to connect on your podcast, man. For real. I'm mad. I, I'm mad. I didn't get to connect with you while you was out here, but it's all good, man. One way or another. Yeah, you know what? Every time I get home, man, it's, I'm, I'm typically just in and out. I see my people, see my friends, and I'm back to whatever I gotta, whatever I gotta do. So, uh, so sorry about that, but I'm glad we connect. No doubt, no doubt, man. I know how it is, and especially with your, with your um, schedule. I know you, <laughs> you mad busy nowadays. And you made a big change from, uh, you was in D.C., and now you're in Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah, I was, was in, been in D.C. the last eight years uh, at George Washington University. Um, and I have an opportunity now to be an assistant coach at Fred Dickinson University. Mm-hmm. I work for Coach Greg Orendo, so I'm really excited about that. They're coming off a tremendous year. and went to the NCAA tournament and won a game in the tournament, which is, which is you know, a, a tremendous feat, for, especially for a team from the NEC. So... Really excited to join your staff and continue to build to the winning culture that they already have in place. So I'm excited about that. First off, before we go any further, um, this media training you got, you need to turn it off. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you sound, you sound like, yeah. like a coach I'll be watching on TV. I know how it is. I feel you, though. Know. <laughs> it's cool, we man. Can, we can tone it, we can tone it down. <laughs> but, um... I mean, we're talking, but a lot of people that are listening probably don't know anything about you. So, um, before we go any further, um, Maurice and I grew up pretty much, well, I wouldn't say the same block, but in the same neighborhood. Um, Maurice was, uh, is still one of my cousins, my close cousin's best friends. We grew up in uptown Montreal. Um, tell us a bit about, like, how, uh, how that was for you, uptown. Yeah, man, uh. Mm-hmm. Born and raised in Uptown, never never lived in, in, in another neighborhood in Montreal. So Uptown back home was really all I know. You know what I mean? And went to uh, went to Bedford Elementary School, went to Mont World, TMR High School. Um, so Golden Edge is really all I know. And, yeah. And, and at this point in my life, I'm so grateful for all the lessons that I've learned growing up in that neighborhood. Mm. From being able to connect with different type of people. From being grateful for the small things, not growing up with much, from being, uh, you know, kind of growing up with a chip on my shoulder and something to prove, and I've carried that with my basketball career, with my playing career, and I still have that to this day, my coaching career, and a lot of those things stem from growing up in Cote d'Azur, growing up around the people that we grew up around, and some of the circumstances and all that kind of stuff. So I, I wouldn't have it any other way. You know what I mean? That's a great neighborhood. I love, I love going back. But like I said earlier. Every time I get back, it's really in and out. To be yeah. able to come back and do whatever I gotta do. But uh, growing up, growing up uptown was was some of the some of my favorite memories, but also molded me to be who I am today. Definitely. And one thing I always say about growing up in uptown is the opportunity, like, meet so many people from different backgrounds. No question. Like there was there were kids there that were from countries that I had never heard of before, and you, you you don't even hear about those countries until you go to that neighborhood. Yeah, no question. You know, my mom still lives on 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 Van Horn, and mm-hmm. the building I grew up in. You know, we were in apartment one, apartment two was a Filipino family, and apartment three was a family from Nigeria. Apartment mm. four was a family from Russia. So just literally in my building, I had people from different walks of life, and different parts of the world, and 
you know, growing up somewhere like that, you gain an appreciation for different cultures, different ethnicities, and it, it, it allows you to kind of go into adulthood with a greater sense of appreciation Definitely. for for diversity, you know, and that, and again, in the business that I'm in, you're, you're, you're connecting with people on a day-to-day basis and learning how to interact with people, especially embracing their differences, that's that's invaluable in this business. I learned that from an early age, even though back then I wasn't really aware I was learning it. When I look back now, uh, I really, you know, really appreciative of all that. And what what got got into you guys into basketball? Because for those who don't know, your brother um, is a pro player right now. Yep. He was also yep. an NCAA player, um, uh, Chris Joseph. So what what got y'all into basketball that early? Because not only did you guys play basketball, you guys were really you guys had the edge over most guys in the in the schoolyards because you really were into basketball at another level. You know what? Over, over my years, I've been I've been asked that time and time again, and I and I can't really tell you where it started or how it started. You mm-hmm. know, my mom worked in starter factories growing up, ah. so she, so she used to bring home the Chicago Bulls gear and the you know the the, the ill. Uh, bomber jackets and all that kind of stuff you know we, we didn't have much but in terms of athletic gear we were swagged out so yeah, we're yeah, yeah. fortunate <laughs> in that regard that's what it was <laughs> you, you, know, you know what i mean so i, I think i think growing up with growing up with that and her being kind of in a athletic you know world so to speak yeah and, um you know watching it on tv i think we kind of just fell into it but i the game is all I've known, man. I, I, I fell in I fell in love with the game. I think before I could walk or talk, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, that's it's all I've ever known. It's all I've ever done. I've, I've really based my life around it, and you know, obviously to this day, my coaching career is is literally my livelihood. So, what got us into it? I couldn't answer that question. Um, I think the, the best way to answer it is I've, I've I've never loved anything else outside of my family and my you know my friends and all that kind of stuff. Loved anything else as deeply as I've loved the game, and that started really early on i couldn't even tell you when it started i'm just glad it did and and it's funny because i think it was an interview your brother was in an interview and he had that cliche story of playing basketball in garbage cans or whatnot and that was really what we used to do out back then yeah yeah remember we before they they put those baskets before they made the court before they put the baskets on the wall where you and I used to play with each other, yep. uh, play two-on-two two and three-on-three three in the schoolyard and all that kind of stuff, we didn't have anything. We had garbage cans. Literally yep. put, you know, three-foot, four-foot, whatever is garbage cans just against the wall. We played three-on-three. Three. We were running, setting screens and picking and rolling and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> running up to the garbage can, trying to dunk on the garbage can. We got mad physical. People would be pushing each other into that brick wall right there in the for schoolyard and that's how we started yeah you know this, this, the summertime it was rough because you know people the popsicle sticks in the garbage and all that so your ball would get sticky <laughs> and, you know it'd be trash on the ball thinking about it back thinking back to it now it's probably not the most hygienic uh way to hoop but, at all you know, that's that that, <laughs> that was for the love of the game that's all that's all we really had you know kent park wasn't built yet another you know, the court there um if I want to go hoop, I have to go all the way to McKenzie Park and walk from Van Horn to Coach St. Catherine. For the listeners who know Uptown well, when you're five, six, seven years old, I might as well be across the world. Yeah, know, that's not that's not really there. happening. <laughs> you, you, know, you know what I mean? So garbage cans it was, and, and I think I think they realized how much we wanted to play and love the game, so that they they finally put the, the baskets up on the walls, mm-hmm. and then ultimately uh, built that court where you know some uh, some 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 legendary games were played. So after, I mean, when did you start playing? When did you start playing organized basketball? Actually, I think the, the, my first team I played at the Hell 
was a, it was a Greek center on Cote St. Catherine. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, I, and I started playing there when I was in the sixth grade. Um, a team called the Beasts. <laughs> I'll, never, I'll, never, I'll never forget it. And, uh, that was the first time I was introduced to playing on a team and all that. Because up until then, it was really just playing in the park and, and imitating NBA players and playing three on three and rarely ever playing five on five at that age. You yeah. know? So that was the first organized basketball I ever played. And then after that, that following year, I went to Mont World and got, got introduced to players like Andre Johnny and Mark mm. Daniel and Elik and a bunch of other really talented players in the city who went to Mont World and that opened up the uh, the door to go to Sun Youth and then you know, step after step after step and the rest is history. But uh, I was 11 years old for the first time I was on an organized team and uh, it was at the Hellenic Center, Greek Center. So you so now you're getting into um, competitive basketball with Sun Youth or whatnot in Mont Royal. So you probably started doing trips to, to the States or outside of Montreal. Yep, yep. With yep. Sun Youth? Uh, yeah, my, uh, I, I, start, I started out as... In seventh grade, I actually made the varsity team, but I was more of a uh, of a team mascot. They called me Rascal because <laughs> like, like a hoop, but I was too short. You know, I, I wasn't strong enough. I just wasn't good enough. I was too young to play with those guys at that point. So I kind of just hung around the team, and that really was the start of my uh, hunger in terms of competitive spirit because I, I, even though I knew I wasn't good enough, something in my mind told me that I was and I felt like I was, so I, I felt like I had to prove it on a day-to-day basis, whether it be in drills or whether it be in shooting competitions or any chance I would get to get a little bit of 5-on-5 action in practice because I was usually on the sideline, almost like a team manager, really. Yeah. Um, uh, that kind of fueled my competitive spirit because I wanted to be out there so bad. And even though I probably wasn't better than those guys, I thought I was, and so I, I just wanted to prove it. And I, and I took every game, every drill, every competitive opportunity i really took it personally it was a personal challenge for me to go and kind of prove my worth and show those guys that i can hoop with them and, and you know as i got taller and stronger and all that kind of stuff over the years uh that that's that start from a competitive standpoint certainly better fitted me and then when i joined sun youth and you know going on the the, the u.s trips uh I had, you know, I had a little bit of a foundation now. I was, I was getting taller. I hit my growth spurt finally and all that. But I got introduced to American players, and mm. I realized I'm, I'm, I'm chasing the wrong crowd. That, that's exactly where I was going with this. Like, how, when you when you started making those trips, what was going through your mind? Because the competition must be on a completely different level. Yeah, what, what, I, what I remember from an early age was how incredibly skilled everybody was you know what i mean at like 12 13 14 years old there's guards who can understand reads in the pick and roll mm-hmm. and there are big men who are polished or big men you know at, at that age six five six six you're a big guy six seven yeah you know polished around the basket and finishing with both hands and understanding pick and rolls and understanding offense and spacing the, the basketball from an individual talent standpoint but also from a team iq standpoint was just so much higher so much more advanced than what i was used to mm-hmm. as a as a 12 13, 12 13 year old in montreal um and that, and that was the first opportunity I, I i got to get exposed to that to that crowd and um it shifted my mentality i, I started thinking and working like what i thought an american player should be thinking and working like and and, and i kind of shifted my I guess my perspective and shifted my goals once I made that first trip because I never forget. I'll never forget when I uh, I was bringing the ball up. That's back then when I used to be point guard before 
before I fell in love with shooting the ball too much. People were smart enough <laughs> to move me off the ball. And I, was, I, was, I was getting my pocket picked. I was getting, you know, they're putting their forearms on me and, and directing my, my, and impeding my progress. I really couldn't get much done. And back home, 12, 13 years old, against my peers, I was a pretty good player at the yeah. time, you know, you know, and, and, um, so I started, I started thinking I need to start chasing the, uh, a different type of crowd if I want to, make it to the NBA and have these lofty goals that all kids dream about. I, I, I was lucky enough to be exposed to that early, early on in my career to be like, you know what? I got, I got to start shifting how I think and how I work and how I play. Do you feel like you were, and it's not like to brag or anything, but do you feel like maybe not physically, but mentally you were in another space than most players and most of your peers in Montreal? Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, the, the kind of the, my MO has always been, um, I've always been a high IQ player, a, a guy who really understands the game. I was, I was kind of fortunate from a from a, a an IQ standpoint to really understand concepts and kind of be able to visualize plays. And I could, you know, you teach me to play once, and to this day I can I can see it once and kind of just remember it and kind of go over it and, and, and all that kind of stuff and all the different details from all five spots and spacing and all that. So like, I've kind of always had that. Just because I watched the game so so closely and so intently, mm. um, and coaches always would always that was kind of my thing. I wasn't I wasn't the strongest or the best athlete, but I worked hard. I was competitive and I was smart, and that was kind of my edge. You know, I, I was never the jump out the gym guy. You know, I was when I hit my growth spurt, I was a skinny kid, so I wasn't I wasn't debuffing people. I wasn't bullying anybody. Yeah, uh, that, that, that was for sure. So I had to outthink people and, and outskill people to understand how to use screens and understand how to utilize concepts and schemes within within an offense to be able to get myself shots and, and all those types of things. So I, I became more of a cerebral player, and that kind of became my edge. And, and then once I got a little stronger, a little bit more athletic and all those things, obviously it really helped my game. But from the onset, I was never bigger, stronger, faster than anybody, so I had to be smarter and work a little harder and understand the game a little better. So for me, that was that was my path to, being, uh, to get us a little bit of notoriety and having some success early on. So, um... Like around, let's say around the age of like sixteen, seventeen, yep. is usually around the age where the best players start to show out their skills and show how much better than they are than the rest of the pack, right? And yep. a lot of times, what makes what makes the difference between one player and the other is how focused he is. And you, I mean, you you were never a square either, you know what I mean? But you were always basketball was always first with you. Right. What 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 do you think was the difference between you and a lot of other guys when it came to that? Um, I, I don't know. I, I've always kind of been a, a I've had a, I always had a kind of a deep understanding of what I needed to do in order to accomplish my goals. And you know, I, I decided early on in my life that I want to be an NBA player. That was you know, a lot of kids have that goal, but instead of just saying it, I was like, all right, well what do I need to do in order to accomplish those things? And, you know, if I fall short, then let me just hang my hat on the fact that, all right, I did everything I could. So I started trying to learn and read everything and, and, and watch videos and whatever I could get my hands on to kind of figure out what the, the Michael Jordans and the Magic Johnsons of the world, what, what do they do at young, at young ages to be able to kind of separate themselves. And I learned early on that those guys were always in the gym Mm. They, didn't, they didn't. They didn't party like the rest of the guys, like the like the peers. They they, they weren't weren't into girls as much and the hanging out and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, all right, that, that's what those guys did. That's what I got to do. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and kind of 
and I and I stayed in the gym, and every opportunity I get, to, I got to get extra work in, whether it be at Bedford Park or or Sun Youth or at Mont World. I took those opportunities just because I, you know, I I always knew what I wanted to get out of the game, and I knew that I had, I had to sacrifice certain things in order to, in 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 order to to, to accomplish them. And you know, I, I was kind of fortunate to have some pretty good coaches and yeah. mentors around me, like you know Alex Adrian, who. Um, I'm not sure if you know, but obviously Edward knows really yeah, well. Yeah. He's very influential early early on. Coaches like Lindsey um, at Mount Royal and, and you know, uh, Vlad at the park. Mm, really yeah, the park. of course, of course. Me. He was kind of the, like the, the, almost like the neighborhood babysitter. Yeah. He probably kept a lot of us out of trouble. Definitely. He, he would show up right at 3.30 right when the bell rung and he would, you know, and, and he would kept keep uh, you know in the springtime. He would keep us on the courts until <laughs> we were, until we had to go home. And then it was from the court basketball that we were at home. We were out running around doing doing craziness and like like some like some of our other peers were at the time. You know, so yeah. uh, I was I was I had a great sense of focus early on. But I'd be lying to you if I if I said uh, it was all stemmed from my own personal drive. You know, mm. I, I was fortunate to have a lot of good men around me, and and those those men were able to kind of just keep me leveled and, and, and focused on what, what I wanted to do, which was which was hoop and get better and advance my uh advance my game. And during all that your your brother's developing also. But he's a lot younger. How how much younger is he? He is three years younger than I am, it, roughly. It seems it seems a lot more for some reason. Because I'm so, because I'm so, I'm such a square, like you mentioned. I'm so. I, old I said you were never a square. Don't even try. <laughs> okay, it's and no, mean, it's, only, it's only three years. It does, it does seem a little bit, a, a little, I guess, like a larger gap than that. But yeah. it's really, it's really when he's born '88, December '88. I'm yeah. born August '85, uh, and and uh, yeah, that's that's the gap. You guys ever play together? You know what? We we never really played together, man. And it was funny because. Years ago, we got we went home when I was still playing, and obviously he was he was still playing. He was a he became an unbelievable player, much better than I mm. I ever was. He uh we we went to a gym and played pickup together for like the first time, and we real and we had a realization at the time we were literally lacing up our our sneakers and we're like yo this is the first time they were on the on the same like pickup team. And I said like, no nah, this can't be the first time. Wow. Like, the last time we played together five on five and hoop together. And I couldn't think about it. And we went, and we, and we were throwing out loops, and we were just down. It was, it was a bloodbath, and it was crazy. We had so much fun doing it, but it took us to become adults yeah. uh, to finally play together. You know, we were, we were so competitive with each other growing up. It was always one-on-one. If we were playing three-on-three, we couldn't be on the same team because we had to go at each other. Um, you know, so it's funny. We, so to answer your question, no, we, ne- we never played with each other on any work, in any organized manner. Um we both got invited to all-star games, but I was in the older game. He was in the younger game okay. because of the age difference and all that kind of stuff. So never, uh, never played together. But uh, thinking back, I, I wish we had because I think I think it would have been a lot of fun. Because like it's, it feels like as soon as you left is like it's like that that's the moment when he started to really shine. Well, you know what? I, I think he started to come into his own. You know, I, as we we were kind of built differently from a mindset standpoint coming up mm-hmm. he he was also he was always a lot more naturally talented yeah you know he was six 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 seven long arms you know he, he could dunk between his legs he could do an east bay dunk in jeans you know and I, I had to get a solid warm-up in and a good active <laughs> dynamic warm-up and stretch for me to even dunk you know what i mean uh so he was always 
naturally gifted in that in that sense, and I always had to kind of outwork and outthink and out you know do all those things to be good. Um, but once you know, once I left for college in you know 2005, I think it was, mm-hmm. he was kind of all right. He already hit his growth spurt. He lost some of that baby fat. Um, yeah, he was getting more talented. He could shoot a little better. His hands were bigger. His, you know, he, he just looked like a. He started to look like a, a like a real player. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that once I left, the he I, he didn't need to be you know Mojo's little brother anymore. So he kind of came into his own, and then he became a player where where down the line, especially when he well, a lot of time he was you know flirting with the NBA. I became Chris Joseph's older brother. So kind of a, uh, a cool full circle moment. Yeah. The, the competitor in me was like, man, I can still whoop his ass. But <laughs> in, in, in reality, he became a hell of a player. And, you know, you saw it. We took, we took a trip together yeah. back in the day to Syracuse and that snowstorm back then. That was nuts, yeah. by the way. Yeah, that was, in retrospect, that was completely, completely crazy. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, uh, no, he, came, he, became a, he became a great player. You know, and he's, uh, I'm really proud of him. So during CJ, you're getting recruited by NCAA, right? Yep. Uh, what's do you remember? What schools were interested in you? Yeah, uh, I mean there were a lot. Not not to sound, you know, not to brag or anything, but there was, talk your there shit, were, man. You know, dozens and dozens and dozens <laughs> of schools who recruited me, and uh, and I give John D'Angelis a, a lot of credit because I went to Champlain and I chose Champlain because there was a history of guys getting Division One scholarships, and again, that was my goal to go play in the U.S. and and, and all that, and get an education and all that, but uh, I went to Champlain to give him a lot of credit because I didn't go play AAU, I didn't go yeah. um, chase, you know, scholarships and all that kind of stuff. He said, you're going to come here, I'm going to push you, you're going to work, and then they're going to come find you because you're going to be talented enough. And I said, well, how am I going to get exposure if I don't go play with this AAU team in Toronto and you know and all those guys were calling my parents to come play with them the grassroots and all the teams in Toronto because at that time there weren't there weren't that there weren't very many Quebec AAU teams getting a lot of exposure Toronto was cream of the crop in Canada really not just the East Coast in Canada really in terms of getting player scholarships so he said Mo you gotta trust me and so I trusted him and I just worked my tail off and he ran his program like an American program and uh we really, really worked. We did. We did the strength and conditioning like American high schools were doing, and uh, we, we really took it. You know, he really did a great job of developing guys. And by the time I was going into my second year in CJEP, you know, I, I remember I got my first offer. I'll never forget. I opened a letter from Siena. Uh, I got my it was my first offer offer as a as a sophomore, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was I was I was flipping out. You know, I was flipping out, and then uh, played in a tournament in. Delaware played in a tournament in um, which Champlain? In, yep. Okay. In a tournament in Delaware and Ohio. So I was flying to the hoop in Ohio and and worn ashore in Delaware. And after those two tournaments, those tournaments were big time tournaments. Like Dwight Howard's high school team was there. Mm-hmm. Brandon, Brandon Rush and you know we played Lexington Catholic with Tubby Smith's son on the team and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I played really well in those tournaments in front of some of the best coaches in the country at the time and uh that's when things started to pick up from my first scholarship and then you know five six seven more scholarships and then uh, by the end of it i had you know about 30 shoe boxes full of full of uh recruiting letters 30 um, shoe boxes you said yeah yeah it was insane actually wow. I had my mom's place i think she got rid of a bunch of them but i asked her to keep 
a chunk of them just for mementos type deal. Some someday I'm lucky enough to have a son or a daughter. I just like to show them, show them that dad wasn't a scrub his whole life. You know? so, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it got it got nuts back then. There was there wasn't as much social media and texting you graphics and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Every piece of recruiting, you know, any anything was was letters. That's that's what it was. And that, and that's only yeah. off of off the of tournament, not even a highlight tape or anything. No nah, man, highlight. See, the, the kids these days have unlimited exposure, and you know, I, I, there's a highlight kid for. For everybody, there's a highlight tape for everybody, who, whether you're talented or not. Mm. It seems, seems that kids got their, their their footage out there. But back then, there wasn't very many highlight tapes. You had to get have opportunities to be seen, be put in front of people. Whatever you do with that opportunity will, will you know, will, will determine whether or not you're going to get recruited and be successful. So you really had to show out when the lights came on because it wasn't Facebook and Instagram and, no. and, and you know, overtime and, and House of Hoops and all that kind of stuff, filming everything, you really have to be able to perform when people were there in the gym. And so, how did you, why, or why did you decide to go to Syracuse? Uh, sorry, I was going to say Syracuse. Michigan, Michigan wrong State. Brother, wrong yeah, brother. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I was recruited by um, a good amount of schools, and, you know, my recruitment came down to Michigan State, mm-hmm. Ohio State, NC State. Um, and Virginia, Boston College. I think those are my top five when I was when I was coming out. And what what it ended up being was I, I had a I had a connection with, with Coach Izzo. Um, I thought he did the best job of building a relationship with me, but also showing up to my games. I'll never forget this. I got invited to ABCD camp. Um, oh shit! They don't have it anymore. But ABCD camp is a legendary camp mm-hmm. where guys like Sebastian Telfair and LeBron and and all those guys kind of made made their, made their name, mark. You know, Lenny Cook. You think back, all those kind of old school guys that had almost had this mythical uh, aura around their names and around their 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 games. Um, I got invited to that camp, and and to backtrack, I remember Sonny Vaccaro calling my phone on my house phone, mm-hmm. and my and my and my mom said, uh, "Here's somebody somebody named Sonny wants to talk to." I was like, "Sonny." That's head so, of a uh, ABCD, right? Yeah, so yeah. 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 Yeah talk to my coach and ask if it's okay. <laughs> so I, 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 hung up, I hung up with Sonny and called JD, Coach D'Angelis, and I asked him, hey, Sonny Vaccaro just called me. He said, he said he wants me to come to ABCD camp. Do you think I should go? And he's like, are you kidding me? He's like, what did you, you tell him? Hang up the phone right now. Go call him back and tell him you'll be there. I'll drive you there myself. So I, I hung up the phone, called Sonny back, and I thanked him for the invite. And I, and I, and I went. And then, um, you know, I, was, I played well there, and I did some good things. Had some shaky games, but you know, I, I did well enough. And I shot the ball really well, so uh, some, some coaches took notice. And I remember Coach Izzo being there. And then I needed to leave early to go to Kentucky mm-hmm. to meet my team at the Kentucky Hoop Fest. So I left camp a day early so I could meet them at, um, in I guess it was either Louisville or Lexington. And I remember Coach Izzo being there for my first game and kind of sitting as close as he could where college coaches were allowed to sit to our bench so he was the first guy that I saw and I remember him being at the games at ABCD so I thought it was intriguing that he found out that I was leaving went to my first game 
Um, you know, then after I played a few games there, my name started buzzing a little bit after playing well and more coaches came, but he was always kind of there early on and did a great job of building a relationship with me. And, you know, I would have these workouts at eight o'clock in the morning at Champlain and, uh, coach Daniels would invite college coaches to come to him to see who was really interested in recruiting me. Cause he, so he made the, the workouts early on purpose. Mm-hmm. Straight enough, coaches was there. He would, he would fly in and fly right out, watch me work out for 45 minutes, spend some time with me, and then head back right back on the plane and leave. So he really did a great job of building a relationship with me. And for me, that's what it came down to. That's why I chose Michigan State. And then, you know, and to this day, he and I are, are, are really close. He's a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. I, I have, the, you know, he's a Hall of Fame coach. I tell people he's a Hall of Fame coach. He's a Hall of Fame person. Yeah. You know, and, and people see the, uh, the coach and the, and the, the the, the sideline and the, the toughness and the, the, the war drills and all the stories you hear about Michigan State basketball and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But I don't think as many people know about the kind of man he is. And that's where I think he really separates himself from the vast majority of coaches because he's, he's incredible with his players in terms of having their backs and caring for them. Pushing them. No, he's, he's going to be tough on you. He's going to, you know, he's going to ride you. He's going to try to get you to kick gears that you don't think you have in your, in your, in your mm-hmm. system. He's, he's going he's gonna to push you now, but at the end of the day, he's going to have your back. And he'll, uh, he's the type of coach that he'll swing first and ask questions later if, when, if you're in a foxhole with him. And that's the kind of guy you want in your corner. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for him. Certainly my coaching career, uh, in, ter- in terms of leaning on him for a, uh, advice, whether it be financial advice, X's and O's advice, how to handle the media, how to handle wins and losses, and all the other com- all the other things that come with the business. Uh, he was instrumental. He's been instrumental in my, de- in my development. He continues to be that. Sometimes when he doesn't even know it, I watch it from afar. Even when we don't talk, I watch it from afar, kind of how he handles certain things. And he's obviously had some great success in his career. So long story short, that's why I chose Michigan State, because of the relationship uh, that I built with him and, and you know, and I, I just, I just thought that was it was the right fit. Ultimately, ended up transferring to get closer to home and be around my family more. But even when after I transferred, uh, we never lost contact. It was a mutual type of deal. He understood, and mm-hmm. um, we never, we never lost our relationship. And to this day, where you know, he's he's a mentor of mine. Uh, I couldn't be more thankful to have a Hall of Fame coach of his stature. Uh, you know, in my network of people that I could kind of lean on. So, so yeah. So as you said, as you mentioned, there was a transfer to Vermont. Um, so what was, what was the, the actual reason behind that, that transfer? I mean, you, you mentioned it, but just like, uh, expand on that a little. Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. I think getting closer to home was, was, was big, was big for me. I wanted to be able to share my experience with my family Mm. and and have to be able to come to games. And obviously Vermont's only an hour and a half from Montreal. Um, so it's a really short trip across the border. Um, I also wanted to have a little bit of a bigger role. Now I played at Michigan State. You know, yeah. I, my sophomore year, I averaged 17 minutes a game, and you know, I averaged six, seven points or whatever it was. So it wasn't like I wasn't playing, but you know, I kind of wanted to get closer to home and do more together. Um, you know, so I, I think Vermont presented a, a really great opportunity for me because um, one, they were a, a tremendous program. Mike Lonigan was the coach at the time, uh, winning program, really on, really on a rise and. I thought I could come and help them and take them over the hump and, and, and really get to the NCAA tournament and do all those types of things. Uh, but also, I was able to get home and cross the border and see my friends and have my mom and dad come to my game. Because so I could count on, you know, my, my hands and feet how many games my mom saw me play in college. You know yeah. what I mean? So 
it was, it was important. I, I just kind of wanted that experience. You know, I, I grew up with them in my corner and supporting me and, and, and helping me and all that kind of stuff. I was like, well, it'd be great if I could share it with them and not have to call them and tell them about it every day. You know, so that, that was that was a big part of it, being able to get closer to my friends and my family, uh, but still compete, play at a high level in a winning culture, in a winning environment. And you know, and we were able to do that. I was a I was a two year captain there. We won two championships, went to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, where I that's played true. my brother. Yeah. Um, my my last college game ever, which still pisses me off. But um, <laughs> it, it be, it be, I, I wouldn't trade my experience for the world because I got to learn and see so much and experience and and kind of deal with some adversity internally with myself. Like, was this the right choice? That I that I that I that I quit? That I give up? All those types of things that might go through a kid's head mm-hmm. at the time. I was able to learn and grow and really kind of become my own man and and make my decisions worthwhile with, with the work that I put into it and the, the attention to detail that I had and all those types of things. So, uh, like I said, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade my, my path for the world because I, I, was, I was able to grow and learn so much and meet some of the most important people in my life. Yeah. I, I have some great friends, teammates that I met at Michigan State and Vermont that are still great friends of mine to this day. And, Coaches that are still great friends of mine to this day that you know that that, that I'll go to war with any any day on a drop of a dime. So um, really, really glad and fortunate for the people I met, the situation that I was put in uh, when I transferred. I just realized as you're speaking, I was like, shit, I could have been to so many games. And I, I think up. I think I've been to I went I only went to one. Did you? Yeah, I think I went to one of them. And I, I don't I don't think I told you about it. I was with a, a few friends of mine because I was in Michigan at the time, and uh, and I was like, yeah, my boy plays for Michigan State, and we just ended up going. I can't remember who you were playing though. But yeah, I fucked. Oh, up. Damn, I wish I would have known. I really fucked up. Um, I, hope, I, hope, I hope I wasn't a bum that day. I hope I <laughs> no, 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 no. You balled out. You played. You played. <laughs> we played well. I remember that, but I can't remember no, who man. it was you played. Um, so like um, you were talking about you were speaking about your path, and that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, the the landscapes changed a lot in Montreal since in the past oh, yeah. Gosh, fifteen yeah. years. Um, would you t- today? Would you have taken the same path, or you would have left earlier today? When you say left earlier, do you mean go to high school in the U.S.? Yeah, kind of like what your brother did, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. It's. It, it, I, I would like to think that I wouldn't, but you know, you kind of you kind of get. You kind of become a product of your environment, so to speak, a lot of times. You kind of just see what people are doing, see where people are succeeding, and kind of just copy that mold. And, and so a lot of kids are leaving and going to the U.S. Um, but at the same time, if you remember in 2000, from 2002 to 2005, if you remember the CJP League, the CJP League was a monster. Yo. People, the, people don't realize. The competition like, oh, was crazy. Right. On my team alone, you have Pierre Marie Cespedes, mm-hmm. who went to Gonzaga, Negus McKenna, who went to Western Carolina, mm-hmm. Max Paulus and Will Archibald, who went to Davidson, Olivia Lamarou, who went to UMass, myself, who went to Michigan State, and you had great, tough CIS level players, yep. like Junior Nicola, who went to Bishops, who was a dog. You know, you, you had Bruno Bernier, Mustafa. So we had yeah. 12, 12 out of like 13 college players on our team and then you go down to Vanier they got studs mm-hmm. same thing at Dawson Dawson had some monsters the, you know, Dawson, the, Dawson had some real monsters the Noel twins and, and 
the, the Randy Alexanders and the Mario Josephs and the David Noels and the Joel Cash. Like, so you, you think about the, the Siege League back then. Yeah. Every, you no, know, the top five teams, you know, the top three teams had like four or five, maybe six Division One players, but the top six, seven teams had at least two Division One players and a bunch of really good players. So mm. the league was highly competitive. So in order, in order to get a great deal of competition, I was able to stay home. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I think the, the Siege League is, 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 isn't what it was back then now. So if I was a young kid coming out now, wanting to get exposure and want to play against some high-level competition, uh, maybe I do leave, you know. But, you know, there's, there's some really talented kids in the Siege League now who are getting recruited and at a high level. You think about the kid, Kareem Adanier, who's getting recruited by schools like Kansas mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so there's, there's still a way to do it. And, and with the exposure and social media and how accessible – um, student athletes are two coaches. If you're good anywhere in the world at this point, you're, you're going to get exposed. They're finding you. Yeah. They'll, they'll find you now. You know what I mean? So I'm not, I'm not sure what I would do um, if I was coming out now. I think it would depend on the level of competition because as, as a competitor, you want to push yourself too. Like if, you're, if you're a player and you want to be the best, you want to try to go seek out the best. And I felt I could do that at Champlain given the time I played in the Siege of League because it was so tough on a, on a nightly basis. So, um, you know, my, my brother had a different path than I had. He, yeah. He did leave Montreal and went to Archbishop Carroll here in D.C. And he got very heavily recruited, you know, Syracuse, Georgetown, Texas, Maryland. He got recruited by Blue Bloods. And, you know, he, he, he had a, a really good two, I believe, two years at Archbishop Carroll. And it was it was a, a fruitful decision and journey for him mm-hmm. um but you know I, we just had kind of different paths and did it different ways and so there's no right or wrong way you know but like i said if, as long as you put the work in and, and you're talented and you know you do your, you know handle your business in the classroom as well people are going to take notice and you're going to get opportunities but um my brother and i are prime examples of you don't have to do either one yeah to yeah, yeah. to that's, make it you know well, that's I, true. I, I chose to stay home and 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 rock out and he chose to leave and play for D.C. Assault and play on the AAU circuit. So we literally had two completely different paths. I did not play AAU and I stayed home. He but I think played AAU, you know, and, and he and we both got recruited by Hall of Fame coaches, you know. I so, think I think your generation um kind of set, set set that up for him cuz like you said that that level of competition probably opened uh, opened up a lot of eyes in the NCAA to to to, to Montreal. Yeah, no question. And at, at that time the CJP League really became a hotbed as coaches because because of the, the level of talent and mm-hmm. you know and CJP players were also a little older and you think you can still recruit them without them losing NCAA eligibility. So I think a lot of coaches like the fact that you get a 19 year old freshman who's a little bit more physically mature, a little bit more mentally ready to be in a, in a college environment, but still get four years out of them. So I think that was a, a huge benefit for them as well. So they like the CJP system. Um, in terms from a recruiting standpoint, yeah, for, for those reasons, but uh, yeah, I, I think our generation did have a uh, have a lot to do with just basketball in Montreal and Quebec in general, and that was a really really good period of talent mm-hmm. leave, leaving the, leaving the city, and uh, I'm just glad that the next generation is taking it and running with it because it's great to, as a you know I'm, I'm an OG now. It's great to sit back and look back and like, all right, well, this kid's playing at Arizona State. This kid's playing at Syracuse. And this kid's, you know, is getting recruited by all these schools. This kid's getting drafted in the NBA. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, and and, and so so it's great to see and great to feel like you have a 
have a footprint um, in in Quebec basketball and Montreal basketball. But you know, the, the, the chip on the shoulder that I have is that I, I still feel like we're behind because again, yeah. we, we got to be chasing the right people and not just chasing the rest of the provinces in Canada. But what are we doing in reference to? What is Quebec doing in reference to the DMV or mm. or Texas or what are we doing in reference to to Philly? You know, so that that's how I've always seen it. That's how I think. Oh, I always have this what's next, how do I get better, how do I chase the, the, the next level type of mentality. And, uh, you know, we, we, we've made some significant strides, but I think I still think there's a ways to go. And I think coaches in, in Quebec and in Montreal can really t- take advantage of clinics and all that kind of stuff. So coaching is better at the, at the grassroots level. So kids are getting higher level coaching at 11, 12, 13 years old. So when they're 16 and 17, they've been running pick and rolls and understanding reads for three, four, five years, and they're not introduced to, to it at the first time when they, when they yeah, step yeah, yeah. on a college campus, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I'll tell you what, American kids, they're watching film at eight, nine years old, and <laughs> literally, I, I, have, I, I, have, I have friends who, who are watching film with their kids, and they're learning the game at while they're, while they're children. You know? So, so, but, so why, do you think, why do you think kids from, from another environment, kind of like Montreal, can still compete well not all of all of the kids here but some of the kids can still compete if they haven't learned that at an, at an early age because i think i think that montreal has, has always bred really talented kids like we, we've always had talent if like mm-hmm. you think back like even in even in the the, the high school league of mount world wager and yeah. all, those, all those high schools there was always talent mm-hmm. there was always talent but there was there was never a you better you better name it Henry Barossa and Denton before they get mad when they oh, listen to this. As a Caribbean English, <laughs> we, we always have beef with the Haitian schools. So all was, I can't I can't front though they they were talented. Yeah, and we did have some epic epic battles and they 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 had, they had a lot of talent. Mm-hmm. I just I just didn't rock with them like that back then. <laughs> kind of a neighbor a neighborhood thing, but. We, like I said, they, 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 we always have talent, we just didn't have the infrastructure set up, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot of Montreal kids can go and play in the U.S. Is based on talent and based on, you know, raw ability and tools and all that kind of stuff because we've always had that. Um, what we haven't had is the infrastructure like a lot of American kids, the private coaching, the yeah. the, the, the workouts, the access to gyms, you know, like there's, there's kids that are five, six years old, so getting gym time. In, in the U.S., and you look around where I live here in the D.C. area, there's the gyms available, high schools available for literally for five to six-year-olds to go work out and work on their game. When in Montreal, one, there's, if you don't have a gym, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta go work outside, and outside is cold for about but, seven months of the year. But you so know what I've noticed, though? You can't, um, you can't really get that exposure. What I've noticed is, well, obviously, you, you probably don't notice because you're not here as, nearly as much, but, there aren't any many as many kids playing outside anymore as as there used to be, and but yet the basketball culture and the leagues and whatnot are full. So does that mean that they are getting more gym time? I think I think so. I think now that that's that's kind of probably more of the case uh, mm-hmm. because of the emergence of talent in in Montreal. So people are making more of an effort, and you know, and and, and programs have gotten better, and talented players have come out come out. So there's kind of this initiative to to push players to, to work out more you know Paget has done a great job at that Park X has done a great job at that Sun News has done a great job at that you know Brookwood has done a tremendous job at that so I think there's teams all, all across the, the landscape in Montreal who kind of opened their doors and kind of done a better job of, of 
of really getting kids in the gym and working on their games. So mm-hmm. I think it, it had to happen the way it did for the uh, the availability to kind of uh, happen throughout the city. You yeah, know, yeah. If, that, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? Like I think that we had to have some success for people to turn the light switch on and be like, all right, well let's let's really invest time and get these kids in the gym and, and set up hours where these guys can come in and really work on their games and get some coaches in here who are capable of instructing and really teaching the game the way it's supposed to be taught and helping these kids get better. And I think incrementally that's how Montreal has gotten so, so talented over, over the years. Cause we've always looked, we've always had talent and ability. Mm-hmm. We just really haven't had the infrastructure uh, across the board. Haven't had the infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, similar to what American kids typically have. So, um, so now college is done or university is done. How did you, um, you ended up in Israel, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, you know, my latter years, um, in college, that's when I really got coaching bug. Or, sorry to cut you off, even before that, like, once you're in, you're in Vermont, you're, you're still, at this point, you still have this NBA dream, or you're figuring, or you're thinking, okay, I need to figure something out. NBA dream. Yeah. My my first practice. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember a player named Shannon Brown. Yeah, of course. He plays for the Lakers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lights game with the Braves. He you, was McDonald's All American, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you did play I with Shannon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I had to guard him for a a year straight because I was on the second team. I had to guard him for a year straight every single day in practice. Every single day in practice, and people saw Shannon Brown and Maurice Sager and those guys in games yeah what they were doing in practice was way beyond that you know what i mean because it's almost like there were no no rules like they they, they no no handcuffs or anything they you know and guarding him on a day-to-day basis made me realize that i should probably think of playing overseas an alternative and, and an alternative because if if he's gonna be like a late first round pick or a fringe type <laughs> guy, and all that kind of stuff, yeah. and he's out here killing me on a day to day basis, and I can't get across half court because he's so physically dominant. Now he's a, now he's a physical specimen. I'm, I'm using him as an example. He's obviously, different levels of guys, but if, if that's what that is, I, I got to look at different, uh, a, a, a different, a different, different path because mm-hmm. he was, he was exceptional, man. You know, he would he would do Statue of Liberty pra- uh, dunks in practice, like in live action. And he'd be block, taking shots off the glass and like you know ducking his head so he wouldn't bang his head on the on the backboard, and doing some freakish type things. And I'm like, I'm I'm here trying to run off the screen and shoot threes and you know trying to get the hell out the way. So, <laughs> um, th- so going back, that's when that's kind of when I started thinking, all right, well, let me keep competing. Let me see how things go. Let me keep working on my game. Keep getting better. But the fact of the matter is, NBA guys are special. You know, yeah. for the for ninety five percent of the, the 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 league, you're a specialist. You're great at shooting the ball or defending or or you know or being an athlete, being just being an exceptional athlete. And mm-hmm. the rest of the other five percent is the guys who are have out of this world talent. Talent, you know? yeah. And, and and most people are never ever ever going to be that, no matter how hard they try. You know, so um, I was able to kind of just continue to continue to work, continue to get better. But as I was doing that, I really took to the the, the, the preparation, the coaching, the uh, the development, the culture building, the 
organizational structure that you have to have to run a program. And I got fascinated with that. Uh, you know, when I transferred to Vermont, that's where I really started to think of coaching because I had to sit. But that's something you always had, though. That's something you always had yeah, in you, though. Like creating yeah, like exactly. relationships. I, I took, yeah. Right. I took to that side of the game uh, from from, a, from an early age, but uh, when I when I really found out that I wanted to coach, when I transferred to Vermont, I had to sit out per NCAA rules, and I, I tore my shoulder up, so I had shoulder surgery. So not only was I sitting out, I was really out, out. I couldn't play, I couldn't practice. All I was doing is rehabbing and watching film, and that really got me thinking like a coach because that's all I could do. That's that was my best way to help my team and uh that's when i really started to figure out that i want to get into coaching so after i played my two years um hired an agent looked look for opportunities overseas was able to find a find an opportunity overseas in, in uh for hapoel afula in israel in the second division and uh i knew i didn't want to play long because i wanted to start my coaching career and coaching the coaching professions are really work your way up type of deal and i'd rather do that earlier than later so mm-hmm. say you know what let me uh let me go play professionally so I can kind of realize that dream that I've always had, making money playing ball and give me an opportunity to see a place, part of the world that I'd never seen or been, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And that was, that was a tremendous experience. But right after that, uh, that opportunity, I got right into coaching and, uh, and here I am. Why do you think, a lot of times you hear about players, um, well, North American players, more specifically American players going overseas and, really not having a good time and not enjoying themselves and not ending up staying. Um, well, that was a lot more back then than now, but why do you think that was? Because people think about being a pro mm-hmm. and they, they think about opportunities to buy things and kind of the glitz and glamour that might come with the, the opportunity to not be in school and just hoop as a job and all that kind of stuff. When in reality, it's, it's not always cracked out to be if you're not in the right mindset to handle it. And I, and I, and I, this is an example. You know, you, you go and play. You're a kid from New York, Philly, Montreal, whatever. You, you go play in a country uh, where there's a language barrier, where you go to the grocery store. You don't know if you're buying chicken or fish. <laughs> you know, you, your, your coach doesn't speak English well, so you're trying to learn the place. And he's getting frustrated. Uh, that the GM brought in an American player that can't learn to play. It's not that he can't learn to play because he really doesn't understand what the hell you're saying half the time. Yeah. You know, and then, and then you're, you practice for two, three hours a day. And then typically as a college student, you have the rest of your day structured, right? You have class, study hall, weights, boom, dinner at this time, all that kind of stuff. So your days are structured and all of a sudden, you know, you go, you go overseas, you have practice for two hours. And for the next whatever happens the rest of the day, you're you're in a country where there's a language barrier and not much to do. You're living in a in a, in a, in a small apartment somewhere. And mm. You're by yourself. Your family your family is six hours uh, behind you. You know what I mean? On back on the East Coast, there's a time difference. Uh, so you gotta you can't even talk to them when you want to talk to them because they're getting ready for bed when when you're just kind of winding down for the evening, so to speak. Um, you know, you're you're traveling within that country. On five, six, seven hour bus rides, when maybe you played in college basketball, where you're flying private mm. from game to game and, and all that kind of stuff and chartered flights. So it's, it's, it's an adjustment. So if you're, if you, if you're not able to kind of deal with those things and, and focus on, on just playing ball and 
you know, and, and enjoy the fact that you're overseas and, and maybe you, you like travel and culture and history and, you know, so you take advantage of the extra time you have. If you're not of that mindset, you, you can really have a hard time. And then there's a, then obviously if you're a professional, there's, there's, there's a pressure to perform. You know, I remember going to play a, uh, a team in Israel at an away game and running into a player on the other team that I knew from my college days and, you know, I was, I was all excited to see him and all that kind of stuff. And he seemed like he wasn't excited to see me. And I said, hey, what's going on, man? You, you doing all right over here? He said, I'm, I'm doing all right, man, but I think this is my last game. And I said, why? Why do you think that? Have you been doing all right, right? He's like, yeah, but the GM wants to go in a different way and in a different direction. He pointed at the, the stands, and there was a player with his luggage in the stands, and that was his replacement. His replacement wow. There. And he said, yeah, that guy's taking my spot. This is another big American, uh, another front court American player. So that was his last game. That that American player took over his spot that very next day, um, and that, and that was it. So there's there's pressure to perform, you know. And if you're not happy or not happy with you, and contracts aren't ironclad like they are in, in America, mm -hmm. and, uh, they don't they don't always have to buy you out completely if they want to cut you and all that. And if they're not happy with you, they it's, it's pretty easy to part ways for for the vast majority of overseas companies. Contracts. And obviously, there's certain organizations that run themselves like like NBA teams, uh, but that's not the case for across the board, across all the countries, all the different leagues, and all the different organizations. So there's so many different things that people don't understand about playing overseas that that make it difficult. And and and, uh, and if you're not ready for all those extra variables, it can be a very tough uh, tough deal. Mm. You know what I mean, I tell I tell the players that I coach all the time, you know. There's pros and there's professionals. You're, you're, you're a pro. You're good enough to be a pro. Like, you're good enough to make money playing basketball. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of pros out there. there. There aren't as many professionals. Guys who are going to take their ability and take the talent, but they're going to eat right, sleep right, recover yeah. the right way. They, they're going to handle uh, interactions with their GMs and their coaches the right way. They're going to be on time and early, early for all film sessions, practices, wait sessions they're going to stay after for extra work those are prof that's what professionals do you know what i mean yeah but, uh, so the difference between pros and professionals and a lot of a lot of pros go overseas but aren't ready for all the professional endeavors that they have to kind of take on to be able to sustain an overseas career really last and have some success and a lot of players are 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 prof one professional I mean, they're, they're just they're lacking professionalism and that could have that could have easily been a, an nba superstar and they become and they become uh uh traveling traveling back ball players because of it because they they, they lack yeah, no professionalism question. no question no question man there's just i mean you hear stories about guys all the time who could have been this or could have been that but mm -hmm. you know either maybe hung out with the wrong guys maybe partied too much maybe didn't manage their money well enough maybe you know yeah. all kinds of variables you know you, you take some of these kids who come from come from the dirt and you give them you know millions of dollars and it's it's a some really really big responsibility to kind of handle all those things while handling the expectations and working on your game and being a 19 20 21 year old kid like having to make some 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 big time decisions and buying real estate and managing your money and all those types of things there's yeah. so many that so many things that go into it that we as the outside from the outside looking in don't always see we just see these guys as mm -hmm. basketball players they're human beings going through, you know, figuring out who they are, dealing with 
friends and family and loved ones and relationships and becoming parents and there's so many different variables and all those things get the, the, you know the basketball is not exclusive and independent of the rest of their lives that's that's part of it you know and, and uh, I think a lot of times the public doesn't see all those things here for coaches the public doesn't see all those things that go into it they kind of just see alright well this is your job do your yeah. job and all that but they're human beings like all these guys are human beings we're all human beings in this athletic world this athletic business and um, our lives trickle into our our professions. It's just kind of the way it is. Just like any other job, like, you know, you, you you're you're a librarian. You're having a bad day. That <laughs> might affect your that might affect your ability to be a librarian on that particular day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, if if I'm if I just lost a hundred thousand dollars in an investment, if I'm an NBA player, that might piss me off that night. So I might not have a great night against mm-hmm. the Knicks on that given night. You know what I mean? So there's there's so many different things that the public doesn't see and people say well you guys make millions of dollars you shouldn't have it's part of it you guys are you guys are human beings i mean even before that even before all that for example like we we're mentioning before we started out playing with garbage cans and there's the guys that made the nba that were even they were like we weren't poor but they are really poor and they're really in right. terrible like for example I, I always think back to penny i don't know if you know penny's like life story yeah. he was extreme extremely poor extreme poverty and made it big so it's hard for guys that come from that type of uh environment to actually be able to handle everything that comes with the nba lifestyle oh man it's it's it's, it's really hard you know and you know and my, and my brother experienced it on a much smaller scale obviously he wasn't mm-hmm. you know an nba all-star one of the greats but he, he was he was an nba player in that environment and you know and, and you know i i, I kind of kept him aware of all the certain things that can pop up and you know all the, all the all the challenges that could arise and all that kind of stuff but some of these some of these like you said some of those guys aren't always ready for yeah the plethora of things that are going to be thrown their ways and and you know people expecting them to pay for this pay for that and you know they got to manage their money and get better within their own careers and learn playbooks and deal with coaches and deal with teammates and deal with agents marketing people it's it's, it's a lot man it's mm. a lot and, uh, you know so any any time I, I, I I've been fortunate to coach some some guys who uh, who have gone on and played professionally and played in the NBA and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the the one thing I always tell them is just make sure that your circle is tight. Yeah. Because as as soon as you as soon as you start you know adding people to that circle and to your roster to your network of people. Uh, things can get loose and things can get lost in translation, man. So mm-hmm. just make sure you know who your people are and that they're free. You and, and all that. Just be, you know, because there's a, there's a lot of leeches and a lot of negative things that happen around these young guys. And, uh, you know, I've seen it a bunch and, you know, we've all heard about it a bunch. And, yeah. You, know, you don't have to be on the inside to know what goes on, uh, so to speak. But, you know, it's, it's tough. It's hard. So now you're coaching. Now you're coaching. Um, what's the new school you're you're coaching at? Yeah, I'll be at Fairleigh Dickinson FDU. University. Yeah, uh, FDU. The NEC conference. And before that, you were at George Washington. Yep, I was at GW for eight seasons. So I was the uh, director of bas- assistant director of basketball operations for two years. Mm-hmm. And I was an assistant coach for three years. And I was the, the head coach uh, for three years. Uh, when I became head coach, I was the youngest head coach in the country at 31. Um, and I was unfortunately let go this spring, um, as is very typical in this business, unfortunately. But uh, it's kind of part of the deal. And then I was able to 
had an opportunity at Fairleigh Dickinson University this recently to be able to coach with Greg Renda, uh, who's a hell of a coach, who's had some tremendous success thus far in his six years at Fairleigh Dickinson University. So I'm excited to be joining his staff and, and, and working with him and, and trying to win more championships um, and, and hang some more banners. I mean, you, you, you've had to face competition on the court. Is it competitive as a coach? I know it's a te- like the oh coaching staff is is a, is a team, but yeah, talk talk about that a little. Yeah, man. I mean, and I'm and then when I'm saying com- a competition, I mean like between, for example, I can understand competition between two two head coaches, but I mean like really between like within the team, within the coaching staff. Um. Yeah. I mean. I mean. I think. As a head coach, you got to make sure that your assistants, you you, you kind of hand, handpick the right people, mm-hmm. not just coaches, the right people to be on your staff. Whether it be one guy's young and, and just up and coming, and then you have one old guy who's been in the business for a long time, and then somebody kind of in between, you know, all that kind of stuff. And one guy's more of an X's and O's guy, one guy's more of a recruiter, one guy's more of a player development guy. So you kind of have to build your 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 uh, staff around what you want your program to look like, what you want your staff to look like, and you gotta you got to run with that. But uh, I, I've heard stories about competition within your own staff, about, you know, cause guys are, some guys make more money than other guys. So yeah. there's, there's some challenges with, within that sometimes, and uh, I think that's kind of kind of natural. But the competition level as a coach uh, is, is, is far greater because now your, your livelihood depends on it. Your yeah. livelihood is in... It depends on winning and losing games, and that's and that's you know that's the reality of the business. You know, it's it's a very rewarding business because you get to impact the lives of young men through the game, similar to how my life was impacted by the coaches that I've had in my life, uh, from from Sun Youth, Mount Royal Sun Youth, uh, Michigan State, Vermont, and on. You know, uh, my life was impacted a great deal. So it's a rewarding profession, but it's a it's a very volatile business, and um, there's a lot of changes with the administration, and that can impact you and injuries and you got to depend on 18 to 22 year old kids to really exceed expectations and handle themselves well off the court role and chore and all those kind of things to be able to continue to you know uh prolong your career and mm. so it's, it's 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 a it's a loaded deal it's a tough business but it's a very rewarding business one that i'm fortunate to be in but what you're right there is competition because not so much well there shouldn't be that much within your own staff from a negative standpoint Point, pushing each other to work harder and scout better and develop harder, all those things. That's good, healthy competition that every staff should have. But, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of bickering and backstabbing and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> I've heard of those instances. Um, but uh, those those things typically don't work out too well. And, um, you know, and, and that's, that's you typically on the head coach, you know. So, um, but it's a, it's a very cutthroat, very competitive field. And, uh, like I said, it's a, Great, uh, great profession, but it's a, it's a, it's a tough business, if that makes sense, you know, so. Yeah. It's, uh, but, but again, the, 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 the fact that I can coach the game at a very high level with, with tremendous players and tremendous kids, uh, to me, you know, I'm going into my ninth season in college basketball, I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I feel very, I feel very fortunate to do that because, you know, part of my job is, like, when we, when we spoke earlier, what, what was I doing? I was, I was literally sitting down just watching basketball. So I was, I was studying <laughs> my new playbook. You know what I mean? That's part of my job. Yeah. You know, I, there's just so many worse jobs that I could have. Not 
um, you know, when I say worst jobs, jobs that I personally would would rather not be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, that in, in my own my own mind. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing and continuing to go along my career doing something that I that I love. Because to be honest with you, I would do this for free. Now I wouldn't tell ads trying to hire me that. <laughs> I want, I want to make money and do all that kind of stuff and be successful just like everybody else. But I, I love the game so deeply and it's been part of my life since, like I said, since I could walk and talk that there's nothing I'd rather, you know, nothing else I'd rather be doing. And, I mean, I got maybe like two more things I want to talk about. One of them being um, as a as an NCAA player and now as an NCAA coach, how do you guide yeah. players um in the decisions they're gonna, those who are good enough to become pros, how do how do you guide them in that decision? Because um, obviously, there's there must be a selfish part of you guys that want to keep that wants to keep some players, another part that wants to send out players to become pros. You know what I mean? Because that also helps you recruit other players. So how do you like how do you um, help a player out to make that decision? Well, in, in my in my experience personally, I've only. The players that I've coached have only gone on to the NBA after their senior year, so after the, their eligibility okay. was exhausted. So okay. they, they didn't have opportunities to come back if they wanted to. In my in my experience mm-hmm. now, I, I know I know a lot of coaches who have lost players to the draft um, early on, and you know that's that's tough. You know you don't have a player that you expect to have for two three years, and and like I mentioned, coaching is a competitive field. You want to have good players in place and kind of have a recruiting uh, schedule in line for year after year to kind of be able to, you know, usher guys out and replace them with other guys on the on the back end and let those guys grow and become players and kind of have a, a, a well-oiled machine in that respect. But it's, uh, I think, I think for the most part, the coaches that I've known have been able to really hunker down and examine the kid's situation both uh, athletically and uh, personally with their families and where they're at, you know, financial situations, you know, stability, instability, all that kind of stuff, kind of gauge what's best for them in that given time. And then really seeing what's the likelihood of you making a decision, if you make the decision now versus next year, what is the likelihood of you being able to stick and really sustain and make the kind of career money and the kind of career that you see for yourself and, and what the experts think you can do and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's why I think it's great that kids can test the waters because, you know, it's, it's a, they get great feedback to whether or not they're ready to play in the league. And mm-hmm. if they're not, well, X, Y, and Z needs to be worked on it a great deal. All right, well, I'll take this next year and work on X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Now the coaches on this on kind of just have that feedback. They get a good player back, but also they can kind of mold that player into an NBA player based on the feedback they got testing the water. So it's a, it's kind of a, a individual deal, you know, kind of coaches getting with that kid's circle and making the decision that's best for them. And obviously there's, there's certain kids who are like the Zion Williams and the RJ Barrett's of the world. There's not very much, yeah. you know, conversations to be had. They, they kind of go in expecting to stay one year because it's a rule essentially. And, mm-hmm. and they're, it's very clear that first round, borderline, early second round guy, you know, so my guys, you know, uh, have, have all been free agent guys who were signed and not drafted, mm-hmm. guys that I've coached, but they've all made rosters uh, because they worked hard, they were experienced, they are talented, they were great kids, mm-hmm. um, 
but uh, it's, a, it's it's kind of an individual deal. A good example was actually um, your brother Chris, because he was kind of like in a situation where even from early on he could have left. Uh, yeah. He could have left early and probably, I mean, uh, well, who knows where he would have been? He would have been drafted, but that was like up in the air for him. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that was that was kind of a deal where he was going back and forth with dads, and um, he had a really good uh, sophomore year, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think it was when he was named Big Big East Sixth Man of the Year. Mm-hmm. Obviously, his team had done really well. Um, he. I think that summer had a procedure done. Yeah, I think he, there was an injury, yeah. Knee, yeah. And wasn't able to work out for anybody. Wasn't it? He had surgery, so he was out the entire summer and into the fall. So he wasn't really able to um, showcase his talents for the, for the NBA scouts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And individual, and like, you know, test the waters and all that kind of stuff. And then had a really good junior year, but probably not as good as he wanted to, so he came back for his senior year and, and all that kind of stuff. Still ended up getting drafted late in the second round, but, you know, I, I, I think he goes back and forth with that and the what-ifs and all that kind of stuff. You think you could do that to your blue in the face, but um, <laughs> his, his, his path was his path, and uh, he's, he's, he's done well for himself in Definitely. his career. Uh, but I think there is, there is always that, that, that wonder if, man, if he was healthy and had he come out, where like where would things be? Where yeah. would he have gone? And all those types of things. But no, you can't you can't kill yourself with with those types of things. You kind of just gotta take life as it comes. It's it's, it's always gonna be curveballs. It's not always gonna be down the middle. We can just swing away and knock out home runs. It's gonna be it's gonna be change ups and curveballs. You just gotta keep swinging at them. And um, I think that he, uh, you know, he he's 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 had some tremendous basketball opportunities and he's he's been Definitely. like I said he's done really well for himself in his career so uh I think he, you know you got to kind of take where, where things are and, and be fortunate and feel fortunate about it and with all the changes going on with NCA right now and with the quote-unquote Rich Paul rule coming up what are your thoughts on that um when it comes to allowing players to have full control of their of their destiny pretty much yeah, I, I think that the NCAA has been really trying to navigate the waters and not necessarily successfully so uh, recently. I think the I think case in point is them putting in the Rich Paul rule and then I think was it forty eight hours later back. <laughs> you know, so I think I think they're trying to they're trying to find themselves and navigate this new landscape of players wanting to be paid and the pay for play and the, the, the trying to get, you know, Players being able to get paid for their likeness and all that kind of stuff. Did you did you have any moments in your career where you were like, "Shit, I should be getting paid for this"? Well, when, when you're when you're when it's winter time and you and it's and your per diem runs out and it's Christmas break and there's no students on campus <laughs> and it's cold and all the, all the store all the good restaurants are closed, you're eating at hey, yo, McDonald's or whatever. Christmas time on campus is hell. Yeah, it's not it's not the best. It's not the best, you know. So. In those moments, you're like, man, I wish I was getting paid for this. But you know, that, that's not for me or to 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 decide or not. I do mm. think everybody, regardless of who they are, should be able to get paid for their likeness if they bring a certain amount of value to any public organization or whatever it might be. I think that it's you know just like any other job in the in the in the, in the free world, you, you get paid for the value that you bring. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one thing, but then there's also the fact that you're getting education, which I do value. Yeah. 
you know that 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 is that is a, a, a big deal to me personally um, because I was the first person to go to college in my family and graduate, and that's something that why I always wanted. You know, going back to the to me being a square, that's always. That's Yo, nobody I, said you were a square. Stop <laughs> that. I said now. no. You misheard. I said you were never a square. That's what I, I said. I'm just, just, just messing with you. But, uh, that's something that I want. Is that something that I value? And I think that, uh, you know, the the people that we're talking about in these instances is a very very small percentage of yeah. basketball players in the country. Like the Zion Williamson's and the RJ Barrett's or even the guys that are fringe potential high school to pro guys. Mm-hmm. That's a very small percentage. There's a lot more guys who need to go get a scholarship and go get a degree Would, so that they can go get a job because they probably won't have a chance to play at all, never mind overseas or anywhere. They got to go make a lot of life for themselves and eventually feed a family. So that education is valuable, extremely valuable. Mm. And with that type of talent, would you have would you have taken like um for example the Brendan Jennings route or would you st- still do what Zion did knowing that you know injuries or or anything like uh, can likely happen any at any time you know what the the fact of the matter is college is not for everybody not everybody wants to go to college mm-hmm. i think the guy, a lot of guys go to college because they know that's a necessary step to get to the nba yeah you know if if I'm if I graduate high school and I want to go become, um, I don't know, uh, you know, work work in a, in a in an office somewhere, I can go do that. If if, I, if I'm of age and I have a high school degree, and if they tell me that's the prerequisite, mm-hmm. I can go do that. So if I graduate from high school and I could go make a million dollars playing in China, and college is not what I want to do, I, I don't plan on getting a degree. I don't want a degree, and I feel like my abilities are going to be able to get me to a life that I want to live. So if I have the opportunity to go play pro right away, you know, I think I would do that just because if I'm not a kid who wants to go to college, like, like I said, if, if, if you're somebody who, want, who graduates from high school and wants to go get a, a, a certain job and a high school degree, a degree is a prerequisite and that's mm-hmm. what you need and you could go make money, go ahead and do that. Uh, you know, the NBA, I think it's the same thing. I mean, uh, professional basketball is the same thing. If Brandon Jennings, didn't want to go to college. That wasn't his deal. It wasn't for him. It's not what he wanted to do. And he had an opportunity to go make money playing basketball right away against some high-level competition, uh, go start making money for himself and his family, then by all means, uh, he should have the right to do that. Um, and then he obviously ended up in the NBA mm-hmm. the next year because he, he, you know, he kind of served his one year overseas, uh, so to speak. But uh, if, 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 I, if I was in that situation and college wasn't what – I wanted, I would certainly go explore the opportunity to play uh, and make some money right away. Uh, especially because I, I just know how fragile this whole thing is. You know, the, the, the window to make significant money in this game is so small and it's so short. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like the windows, it's, it's, a, it's a slither. Like it's really hard to, to make a lot of money. And then you don't know, you know, there's injuries and there's all kinds of things. You know, the kid Isaiah Austin from, from Baylor with the heart condition. He yep. was, I thought he was going to have a, a monster career, and then all of a sudden, he goes to a doctor appointment, he can, he can never play again. That's you true. Know, and, and you got guys like, you know, just like today, Boogie Cousins, yep. you know, he, he tears his ACL, he, he took an under-market contract, I think, to prove to people that he can win and be a winner and and, and, and all those types of things. You know, from the outside looking in, so that's what it seemed like. He took a contract, which 
uh, a player of his stature, I think he was worth so much more, but he did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Then took another undermarket deal with the Lakers, and here he is, and he blows out his knee, and who knows what he's going to be like coming back, where he's going to be physically and mentally. And, um, you know, he was a guy that averaged 25 and 11 just like three, four years yeah. ago. You know, so you never know what's what's going to happen with, with this game. It's so wild. There's so many variables. There's a lot of luck involved. you you got to stay healthy. you got to get some lucky breaks in terms of landing in the right spots, in the right systems, the right people, right teammates. Um, you know, that's college and pro. So if I had the opportunity, I think I would I – would, Go. Uh, I would go explore those opportunities and, mm-hmm. and, and try to and try to uh, to make money playing. But again, that's me. If I was that good, if I wasn't, and that, like I was a player that I was mm-hmm. uh, coming out of Vermont, I'm going to go to college because I know I'm probably not going to make hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. uh, out of out of college playing the playing the game. So let me go get a degree so that I have something to fall back on. And you know, and I, I currently have a master's degree, and been fortunate to not have to pay for a, a, a dime for. A bachelor's or a master's is all because of basketball, so uh, I'm very fortunate for that. But again, education was my route. Had I been, you know, six seven with longer arms and big bigger hands and a better and better handles and more athletic, I probably might might, might think a little differently, you know. So mm-hmm. I think it's a it's really an individual case, and I think the NCAA is still trying to navigate those waters and kind of test to see what works. And it's not an easy thing, man. There's a lot of media people involved and now you know lebron and some nba guys have become very vocal about it and uh there's there's some some dialogue going on that's i think necessary to be had but uh i think we're far from uh ironclad decision uh i think they're, they're gonna kind of just keep testing the waters so before we leave i want you to give me your top five current nba players and current. then and then your top five montreal players oh, not not current <laughs> um, let's start with the NBA guys. Um, you said current, right? Yeah. So I think I think that Kevin Durant is the best current basketball player in the game now. Mm-hmm. You no, know, two maybe two years ago I give it to LeBron. So I think it'll be number one KD, number two LeBron mm-hmm. at a very at a very close second. I think number three is Anthony Davis. Okay. I think number four. It's tough. I think number four. <laughs> You've been talking for an hour and a half, and now you can't pick five players. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to really give them the, the, the respect they deserve. Yeah. Number four, I'm, I'm going to say Steph Curry. Okay. All right. I think I think shooting is the hardest skill in basketball. I think he's the best to ever do it. Mm-hmm. I think he's so good at the highest level, and I think. Number five, I'll, I'll give it to uh, James Harden. Mm. I'm sh- I'm shocked you didn't add in. Uh, well, then again, you put Steph Curry in there, so I, I think that's what kicked Kawhi out of your top five, probably. Yeah, and I, I'll probably I'll, see. I'll probably give Kawhi and like Paul George and those guys kind of like the six, seven. I don't know. This, this, that's barbershop talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can go back and forth on the top five all all, all day, but. In terms of Montreal players, are you talking about all time? All time. Um, That's a great question, man. Like, <laughs> I, I want to give the Trevor Williams and the Wayne Yearwoods and those guys the kind of the, the, the respect that they deserve mm-hmm. in this list, but I also never, 
I played against them in men's leagues when they were when they were after their careers, and I know what they've been able to accomplish. So I'm gonna try to make it a younger top five based on the guys that I played against or I've yeah. seen. Yeah, yeah. Put it put it in your era. Yeah, your era and after. All right. So I'm I'm selfishly gonna put myself somewhere in the top five. All right. I mad at I'm, you. But I'm uh I'm also gonna put my brother in there just because I think that he's one of the best players to ever come out of the city. Mm-hmm. I really think that Pierre Marie Cespedes was one of the best players that I had I had ever played against and seen. He was nasty. He he was six one with engines for lungs. He could go all day. Um, he he's a big reason of the reason of the player that I became. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to Shannon Brown, when I, when I got to <laughs> Pierre Marie he kicked my ass every day. Yeah. So I think Pierre Marie was really one of the best players I'd seen. Um, one of my favorite players ever, you know, when we talk about the Hunsik and all the Bulasa days, is uh, Mannix Oriental. Hey, you, remember, you remember Mannix? Bro, once I had to guard Mannix at Park X, and I just had a forearm on his back, and I could feel his muscle just like, <laughs> like, oh man. Ma- Mannix is one of the toughest guards I've ever, I've ever seen. Yeah. And he was one of the few guys in my life. Like I, I've always prided myself on working hard and being able to kind of just like accept challenges and all that kind of stuff. But I remember growing up, mm-hmm. he was much older, but I remember playing against him in like a summer league type pickup type deal mm-hmm. and going up against him and kind of that matchup being hyped up by the people on the sidelines and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And being like, damn, like I'm about to get my ass kicked. Right? <laughs> like, he's, about to, he's about to cook me. And he was one of the few guys that I ever thought about. He was so much older, strong and athletic. And, yeah. Uh, he, was, he was tremendous. Um, so Pierre Marie, uh, Mannix, and then one of my, let's see. I want to say, see, I'm, I'm torn between like the Randy Alexanders and the Ricky Volsies. Like Ricky Volsey was a hell of a player at, like he was kind of that stretch four before stretch fours, stretch fours and could handle it and all that kind of stuff. So, so here, here, here's, here's my top five. Mm-hmm. I won't put them in order because that's, that's too tough. I'll say myself, my brother, Ricky, Mannix, and, uh, and, and Pierre Marie. That's a pretty good five, man. Yeah. I, th- I think, uh, those, those, those five really, or us five rather, really had kind of an impact and did, did well in the city, all stayed home played except for, you know obviously my brother didn't but he, he, was, he was drafted in NBA so I think he has to be in there <laughs> um, so yeah man so, selfishly I put myself in there because I, I don't get to I don't get to you, you, myself on the you gotta explain that man I'm washed up now so put myself in there man that's, that's, that's all there is to it hey, yo listen man I really appreciate this man no I absolutely man time. glad we connect I, I, thank, thank you for doing what you're doing I think it's great uh, I I when you asked me to get on, I kind of went went online and gave me the website, kind of checked out the guests and all that kind of stuff. So I'm glad we can connect and do this. And anytime yeah. I can help or hop on or do anything you know, to kind of push the culture uh-huh. forward or kind of drive some conversations, I'll be happy to do it. Thanks, I appreciate it. Uh, hardly home, but always repping. You hardly own it, always second. When I'm awake, you always resting. And when they call you to answer, you a hardly question. I, I'm doing classic shit in all my sessions. Other nigga situations, they are all depressing. 
That's why I never follow y'all suggestions I just always did my own thing Now I run the game You stupid motherfuckers I see all this money through my Ohio State Buckeyes Shit been going good But good could turn to better Cause you the type of loser And I'm about to get her It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay You go run and tell your friends that I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on Let's believe I understand It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay You go run and tell my city I'm on, I'm on, I'm on Just a younger you and shouting on a party So don't let your girl up out the house Or there'll be shots on TMZ of me giving them mouth to mouth Now she's famous and a paparazzi starts to shoot her I drive two black cars, I named them Malcolm X and Martin Luther I don't ever play, but I'm in the game, lady They just lose to love, those are tennis games, lady Have you count money, going duffel bag crazy Sipping on Pink Floyd and puffing Wayne Brady Damn, whose line is it anyways? I'm in the days You been amazed Y'all seem to be stuck on that beginner stage I'm on fire, yep, I been ablaze I got dough to blow, but I wanna blow it right You look nice, and your frame makes me wanna bowl a strike Well, alright, yes I might Know what, fuck it, yes I will I am more than what you bargain for And nothing less than real Put it to your life It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay You go run it Tell your friends that I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on. Let's believe I understand. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You can run and tell my city I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on. You can run and tell my city it's on. King of the drill, also one of the dopest Whether the streets are on the mic, I'm doping Yes, I'm focused, the gangster recognize me for my lowness No jokes, time to shake these haters off like the skin of a locust Or maybe like a python, that's the type of shit I'm on I wrote this on my iPhone, so let me drop this I-bomb I palm the game like it's a spawning ball and take flight From the free throw line and slam it down like I'm the great Mike Bunning white Ain't it Drake in here, man, this gon' be a great night Look at all these poses, bite, I swagger like a great white Try to cross me over, I just fake left and I break right Stupid animal tricks like David Letterman's late night This that major moment you've been waiting on for too long The best that ever did it and doing it on a new song UGK and Young Money too strong Bound to be in the green like a crew tone So what the fuck is you It's on? okay, It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You go run and tell your friends that I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on. Let's believe I understand. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You go run and tell my city I'm on, I'm on.
all American bad boy I own the swag of supermarket and you, you just a bad boy Cause I got that swag boy, the swag you never had boy Play and I believe your chance the color of my flag boy Subu bitch, I do this shit, I'll erase you like I do you bitch And I keep that toaster, you can come and be my school bitch I'm so uptown, a motherfucker if you ain't, don't go uptown Shooting in a mosh pit